Okay, the, the title is uh, you know, What You Should Know About Socialism. And uh, originally it was, uh, you know, what millennials should know about socialism, but, but somebody uh, centrally planned the schedule and changed it in the, with this. And uh, the president of the Mises Institute has informed me that no student will be allowed to leave the building tonight unless you can prove you have purchased a copy of my book, The Problem with Socialism, uh, over here. So, so make sure you have your receipt and a copy of the book at hand, uh, or else you'll be spending the night here. Um, uh, this, that's Pinocchio on the cover, by the way. And uh, my, my publisher, Regnery Publishing, they, they, they debated uh, the Pied Piper and Pinocchio. Those were the two, the two finalists in the artwork for the front. There was a, there was a great, I preferred the Pied Piper because it had a big group of children following the Pied Piper be, uh, behind the Pied Piper. And I guess the Pied Piper was supposed to be Bernie Sanders, you know, <laughs> you know with, the, with the flutes. But, uh, but they chose Pinocchio instead. Uh, and it's, uh, they thought it would stand out more in a bookstore with the, with the big nose and all that sort of thing. And so I just, so I wrote this, this book. Uh, it's a fairly short book. Uh, and, uh, and Regnery uh, contacted me uh, when, you know, there were these opinion polls came out. That, you know, some of you might be familiar with them of American young people. Uh, and I guess millennials are, I don't know, anybody between 16 and 35 or something like that. Uh, uh, high percentage, you know, one poll had 60% said they prefer socialism to capitalism. Uh, another one, 40% of them said they could vote for a socialist candidate for president of the United States. And so, uh, so we decided it's, a, it's important to put together a book that's easy to read. You can stick it in your knapsack, which is why it's this size. It's, not a, it's, it's a little smaller than human action, you know, <laughs> as, as you can see. But... Uh, but, but I did, how many chapters did I write? I had 16 chapters that I, that I, that I fit in there. And the problem is different aspects of socialism. I tried to make it as readable as possible, but with lots and lots of footnotes, all well documented, in case anybody wants to uh, follow up with anything. And so what I'm going to talk about today is basically things that uh, if, you, if you get into a, uh, a discussion or a debate with you, one of your uh, classmates, the sociology major, uh, who, who's wearing uh, the capitalism must die t-shirt uh, on campus, uh, you can't really say, go read human action, you know, you know, convince them or something like that. You know, how could you have a conversation? And so, uh, so I'm going to go down as many of these 10 points as I can uh, get through in, in 45 minutes. And, but first of all, you know, what is socialism? It started out, the definition of socialism is government ownership of the means of production, okay, in the early, late 19th, early 20th century. But as Hayek pointed out in The Road to Serfdom, in the, in the 1976 edition to The Road to Serfdom, he said pretty much by the 1930s and 40s, it, it came to mean not just that, but, uh, but the redistribution in, of income through the welfare state and the progressive income tax. And Hayek wrote that uh, egalitarianism was always the ideology that was least uh, put out there by socialists of promoting uh, equality you know, of outcome. <clears throat> and and uh, the vehicle started out as being a takeover of the factories, uh, but that didn't work out too well in Russia. And so uh, they kept the same goal, egalitarianism, but different means, different vehicles, meaning the welfare state and the progressive income tax. And if you, so if you were to go on the, the website of, say, Democratic Socialists of America, you wouldn't see any definitions saying government ownership of the means of production. You'd see all sorts of 
of things, you know, super minimum wage, uh, you know, takeover of the electric power companies. You know, they would they want a government run, you know, a lot of government run industry still, but but it involves a lot more. You'd see, you know, a vastly expanded welfare state, progressive income tax, and so forth. So it's 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 a lot more than just government ownership of the means of production, and uh, and and whenever I give these talks and when I write the book. Uh, people, uh, I did 65 radio interviews in, in about in about a month after the book uh, came out, and people would always tell me, "Well, com yeah, communism was bad, but socialism might not be quite as bad." Uh, but uh, my answer is though uh, was given to me by my old friend Yuri Maltsev, who lived a big part of his life under communism, and was a an advisor to Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, that uh, there never was any such thing as communism. You know, communism is this utopian ideal that will occur once the state withers away, okay? But in the meantime, we're all socialists. We were working toward communism. And so, yeah, that's why the Soviet Union, you know, it was the Union of, so of Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR. They didn't call it the Union of Soviet Communist Republics because communism never existed. It was what they wanted to achieve uh, 200 years from now or, or whenever. That was the, you know, the utopian goal. And so it really is a red herring argument to say, well, yeah, that was communism, all that bad, bad things that happened in the 20th century. No, it wasn't. That's why Mises' book was called Socialism and Not Communism, his critique of socialism. He knew what he was criticizing out there. Okay. Another point that you would need to make is that if you want to destroy your economic future, then go for it. Adopt socialism. Okay, just, just look at history. You know, look at history in the... Uh, to quote uh, my old friend Yuri again, you know, Yuri defected from the Soviet Union before the collapse, uh, and he, he's a good friend of the Institute. He was here uh, Sunday uh, for passing through town, and he's, taught, he's lectured at the Mises Institute many times. He'll be at the Supporters Summit in September here in Auburn, and uh, he defected from the Soviet Union, and uh, it's, it's a remarkable story. So one day he's an advisor to Gorbachev, and he's one of the architects of Perestroika, and a couple of weeks later, he's a civilian employee of the U.S. Army and, and employed by the CIA. And he's debriefing Dick Cheney, the defense secretary, on the size of the Soviet economy. And the story he tells is that he, he told Cheney the Soviet economy was no more than 5% of the U.S. economy. And Cheney tells him, well, our CIA says it's more like 65%. So... Surely it's probably somewhere between 5% and 65%. And Yuri was adamant, no, 5%. That was it. And so he apparently is the guy who convinced uh, the U.S. government that the Cold War is over, that you know, the, 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 so the Soviets could never wage a war against, against who. Uh, as somebody said on TV last night, even today, there's still like uh, uh, Mexico with nukes as far as the size of their economy. You know, they, you know, not, not there's anything wrong with Mexico, but in terms of GDP, size of economy, it's, so, you know, just like, you know, we're not worried about uh, Mexico dropping nuclear bombs on us, and neither should we worry about them necessarily. And so, uh, and it was much smaller then. So it was mo no more than 5% of the U.S., biggest country in the world, most natural resources, a huge population of very talented people, uh, the Russians have always been creative and talented people. Through, for hundreds of years, they produced a lot of brilliant people. And, and look what they did. I, well, I, I had an MBA class once. Somebody asked me, uh, well, what, or I asked the class, well, you know, who can think of any good product that was produced by Russian socialism? 
and nobody could say think of anything. And I had a couple of uh, military guys in the class, a couple of U.S. Army guys who were getting an MBA degree, and they said AK-47s. And I said, that's all they could think of. But, I, but even that, you know, who knows if they, they probably spent $5,000 in resources to produce a $500 gun. You know, yeah, yeah, it was the AK-47, but probably, it wasn't, probably wasn't even profitable uh, produced in that manner under socialism. And then, of course, after World War II, the British decided to ditch uh, Winston Churchill as their prime minister uh, when he ran for prime minister. And Hayek was one of his advisors at the time, and he kept quoting Hayek. And that probably didn't help him out very much because it's right at the end of World War II, and there's this guy with a vaguely German accent as an advisor to, to Winston Churchill. That didn't fly politically in, in England at the time. And so they adopted Fabian socialism in the, in the 1940s, right after World War II, their own version of socialism. And by the 1970s, the whole world was talking about the British disease because they nationalized all the commanding heights of the economy, the steel industry, electric power, the railroads, coal mines. And, and they did what, what always happens with, uh, with socialism is uh, they, they took... Uh, for every $1,000 in resources, they turned it into something less than $1,000. And you do that year in, year out, you're in big trouble. So it was known as the British disease, and that's how Margaret Thatcher got, it, got elected in, uh, and tried to turn things around through privatization. Uh, Argentina, you know, give another example. Uh, they had a sort of a combination of socialism, nationalization of industry, and fascism, where they, had, they allowed private enterprise to exist, but heavily regimented by government, pervasive price controls, pervasive regulation. It's essentially economic fascism. And I'm going to talk in a minute about how fascism always has been a, a, just a form of socialism. There's no difference, really, between fascism and socialism. Just minor differences. Uh, and then Argentina did what, uh, what all these countries uh, do eventually, what Venezuela is doing today. They ruin their economy, and they try to bail themselves out by printing money and they ended up with 12,000% price inflation in the 1980s. And uh, Argentina went from the 10th richest country in the world at one point in, in history to barely ahead in, in the rankings, GDP per capita GDP rankings, barely ahead of equatorial New Guinea. Uh, and so that's what socialism did for Argentina. After, after the British left uh, uh, as rulers of India, in uh, India, the Indian government had the bright idea that Soviet central planning would be the wave of the future. So they literally hired a Soviet economist or two to come over and to, to uh, cooperate with a couple of uh, Indian economists. And, and of course, naturally, India became synonymous with poverty for many decades after that until Rajiv Gandhi came along and began uh, privatizing and cutting taxes and liberating uh, uh, the Indian economy. So uh, you know, if you want to create poverty and misery, there's your roadblock. Uh, after colonialism uh, in Africa, the slogan that the African potentates gave is uh, Africa must, cannot prosper without socialism. And of course, by that, they meant it cannot prosper without us being dictators and centrally planning society, pretty much. And of course, the rest is history. Most of Africa became synonymous with dire poverty uh, as well for many decades until some of the countries anyway began liberating. 
And of course, you have the example of China and Hong Kong, you know, for all those years, when, before China started uh, allowing uh, more and more private enterprise to exist. Uh, it was a glaring example. Hong Kong was one of the most prosperous countries in the world, even though it's basically a big rock with no water, no oil, but a lot of freedom and a 10% flat income tax under British rule. And right next door, the same people, the same culture, the same language, uh, totally the opposite, totally you know, dire poverty until they started turning around. About 15 years ago, I had a student who uh, came to school. He wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, he was a freshman. I'm going to be an entrepreneur when I get my economics degree. And he spent his junior, uh, junior year in uh, China in his study abroad. And he came back and he told me that, uh, that there's, he thinks there's more economic freedom to be an entrepreneur in China than there was in the United States at that time. And, uh, and, and, and he went back to China. He, he did what he said he was going to do. He became an entrepreneur in China, learned Mandarin Chinese, he got married and became a businessman in, in China. Okay, so, so if you want to ruin your economic future, socialism is the perfect roadblock for it. That's also one message you can tell your, your classmate with the capitalism must die t-shirt. Okay, another, another thing I would say is you cannot reform socialism. You know, reforming socialism and making it work this time is kind of like saying, well, you know, I'm highly allergic to poison ivy, and, but here's what I'm going to do. And there's a lot of it in my yard. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a pair of scissors, and you know, poison ivy has three leaves on it, and I'm going to go all through the yard, and I'm going to, I'm going to clip off one leaf of every poison ivy plant. I'm going to, I'm going to reform poison ivy. So that'll, that'll do the trick. Or, or if you live in Alabama and you have kudzu that's taken over your, your pine tree, it's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to get some scissors and clip around the edges of some of these kudzu leaves. It'll stop it from growing. It won't, well, the problem solved. And of course, you cannot reform socialism uh, despite what George Stiglitz says. You know, George Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning leftist uh, communist economist, uh, uh, when he was working for Bill Clinton, authored an article in the New York Times claiming socialism can work after all. You just need to have smart guys like me in charge. And of course, <clears throat> how many times has that argument been made over the past 100, 100 or so years, over and over and over and over and over again? You know, what, uh, you know, what a hubris you know, can you have? It, it shows you that you don't need to know anything about economics, really, to win the Nobel Prize in economics. And, uh, and it reminded me of when a, a speech my old professor Gordon Tullock once made at a, at a meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society in, in Cambridge, England. And this was back in 1984, when I was only two years old that time, back then. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, Gordon brought down the house. These were all these, uh, Hayek was there. And he, they were all these classical liberals. And, he, and uh, he's, he's giving the speech how to win the Nobel Prize. And all he had was a bunch of quotations from James Tobin. And he would just you know, read one of these things and the whole 700 people would just break out in laughter over and over again. And, but these were people who, who were familiar with Austrian economics or at least the bastard child of Austrian economics, Chicago School Economics, <laughs> at least they knew, 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 knew that. And so, so they, they got it, they got his jokes. So you cannot re reform socialism because of the incentive problem, the old incentive problem, the calculation problem that uh, you all should be schooled in by now in this room, and, the, and the, the knowledge problem, the idea that a small group of planners could somehow possess all the knowledge that is in the minds of the millions of market participants 
you know, in other words, the eye pencil, the famous essay eye pencil by Leonard Reed, you know, read that and you understand that what the knowledge problem is basically of organizing uh, the allocation of resources takes a lot of information of time and place in the minds of a lot of different people. And so you can't reform socialism for these uh, reasons. And, uh, you know, when I teach principles of economics, you know, week one, week two, at some point, uh, I tell the class, here's, uh, or sometimes the first day of class, uh, when we're going to, here's how I'm going to grade everybody. We're going to give uh, multiple choice exams here. It's principles of microeconomics. And uh, I'm going to get all the exams. And if, and, uh, all I'm going to do is I'm going to get the higher scores and I'm going to redistribute the points. So if you got 100, I'll probably give 20 or 30 points away to the guy who got a 40 so that everybody gets a C, the same grade, because I'm going to adopt academic socialism. That's, that's what we're going to do. And so you've, got, so you've got that problem. And so, of course, every single one of them understands, well, why should I study? Why should I spend one minute studying? I'm going to get a C no matter what happens. And, uh, and so and that's, that's the incentive problem. But the, mo the more important problem, though, is the calculation problem. Uh, how do you know how to, how to uh, put resources together in an efficient manner to produce goods and services if there are no private property and, and market prices, if the prices are arbitrarily dictated by government and they don't reflect uh, scarcity or supply and demand in general, then you're just uh, doing everything random. It's like... It's like trying to drive around a strange city without street signs and find where you're going. It's, it's an impossibility. Okay. Uh, point number four I would make is that uh, democratic socialism, uh, there's no reason why democratic socialism cannot be just as destructive as any other kind of socialism. Uh, uh, Bastiat, Friedrich Bastiat wrote in his famous book, little book, The Law, that in, in his day he recognized that well, what's the difference between the government just confiscating factories and people voting to allow government to confiscate the factories? <laughs> the only difference is, well, we took a vote on it. But the end result is the government confiscated the factories. And so he made the point that, you know, if the government votes to have some one uniform plan, or the people vote to have one uniform plan put on all of society, it's the same as communism. If communism was just put one uniform plan on society by the government, it doesn't really matter whether you took a vote on it or not. You get the same, you get the same result. And of course, if you just look around the world, you look at Venezuela today. I probably we're going to have, and I encourage everybody to listen to the presentation by our students from Venezuela tomorrow. What, what time is it tomorrow? What is it? 12.30, 12.30 tomorrow about the Venezuelan economy because your, your classmate with the Capitalism Must Die t-shirt needs to know about what's going on in Venezuela uh, today and it has been going on for quite a while. Brazil, Argentina, the same thing. These are all democratic countries. Hitler was elected. You know, dem democracy doesn't necessarily uh, guarantee uh, peace and prosperity at all. Uh, and as far as that, you know, what, one of the... One of the uh, Questions I always get when I when I did radio interviews about this is uh, what about Sweden? You know, what about Sweden? Some of the Scandinavian countries. Well, you know, uh, one of the things I did in my classroom last year when I was talking about this is there are these indexes of economic freedom, and uh, the Heritage Foundation does one, Cato Institute does one, the Fraser Institute in Canada uh, does one, and and, uh, and actually Walter Block is is sort of the founding father of these indexes of economic freedom. He, he uh, worked with the Liberty Fund, geez, it was like the late 80s, early 90s, 
and to start have some conferences that just start talking about this concept of uh, indexes of economic freedom. And I attended one of the very first ones that Walter organized, and I sat next to Milton and Rose Friedman, and uh, uh, Richard Stroop was there, and Charles Murray, and who's a, a, a fabulous statistician, and, and people like that. And we're just talking about the concept of, well, what should we include in these indexes of economic freedom? But now they're, they're very well worked out. There's, there's scholarly articles that have been written about them in all the top economics journals. And if you look at the latest rankings, they rank countries and they give them a number by uh, you know, the degree of economic freedom, you know, freedom, freedom of exchange, free trade, uh, 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 foreign exchange rate controls by government, sanct you know, protection of property rights, all these categories that they use. And Sweden and the United States are pretty much tied today. You know, the rank, it's like, like 116 and 117 is the index number for these countries. So, so the degree of economic freedom, in other words, in Sweden is about today, about the same as in the United States. It wasn't always that way, though. Uh, Sweden, you know, after, in the post-World War II years, uh, adopted their version of, uh, of, of democratic socialism. And among the things, and so, and they were able to do that because uh, Sweden was a very low-tax uh, a high, uh, high economic freedom country in the late 19th, early 20th century. They produced many great entrepreneurs who, uh, you know, the, the Saab automobiles and, and, and things like that, uh, dynamite, you know, Alfred Nobel and dynamite. And, and so it became very prosperous, one of the wealthiest countries uh, in Europe, certainly, and if not the world, for a while. And then they made this big U-turn and adopted uh, post-war socialism and uh, according to the Swedish Academy of Economics, and I guess it's their version of the American Economic Association, not a single net new job was created in Sweden from 1950 until 2005. Not one net new job was created. 55 years of zero job growth in Sweden as a result of Swedish socialism. And so by the 1980s, they did what Venezuela is doing today. They did what they do, Argentina did in the 80s. They tried to inflate their way out of it. They created a lot of inflation and 500% interest rates in, Sweden in the 1980s. And so that caused a great retrenchment. So they stood in retrenching, uh, cutting back, cutting taxes, uh, uh, even doing away with some uh, uh, socialized medicine, privatizing industries, so that today they're back, they're ranking, their economic freedom index ranking is uh, much closer to the U.S. You know, as, you know, we've been marching in their direction, their direct, we've been marching in that direction. So what I, told, what I told some of my students was that when Bernie Sanders makes speeches say we should be more like Sweden, he means Sweden of 1970, the Sweden of his youth. He doesn't, he doesn't mean Sweden today. And, and the government of Sweden adamantly uh, denies that they're a socialist country. You know, who wants to be called a socialist country aside from the crazy people in Venezuela and Cuba and, and, and a few other places like that in the government uh, today? You know, you know, invest here. We are a socialist country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Another point that needs to be made about socialism uh, is, uh, and I encourage everybody to read the chapter in, in The Road to Serfdom, Hayek's famous book, The Road to Serfdom, uh, on the, called The Worst Rise to the Top. And the fundamental idea is that under socialism, and, and 
collectivism of any kind, no matter what you call it, uh, it, it basically requires the forceful imposition of a government plan or a set of government plans to replace the individual plans that people make for their own lives. And so it, it always requires some degree of coercion, force, intimidation, uh, and it's a matter of degree. You know, it's like the leftists today in America that you see setting fire on buildings because a Tom Woods-type speaker might show up at Berkeley to give a talk, or, or, or Antifa beating the daylights out of somebody because he's not a communist like them on a college campus, and all this violence. I mean, that's nothing compared to the mass murder of millions that occurred under socialism in the 20th century, but it's still the use of violence, coercion, intimidation, and so forth. It's, it's, it's ingrained into the psyche of every collectivist that they know best and that they have some sort of inherent right to force their way on you. And so, uh, so there's, there's a big, uh, big you know, matter of degree of how much coercion and violence they're willing to, to impose on, on you. And, and Hayek makes that point that under, under socialism, uh, it requires the people who rise to the top are the people who have the fewest qualms about uh, brutalizing their fellow man. And so if you look at some, of, and this is something that uh, your classmates uh, should need to know about if you're going to debate them about socialism, because their professors with the, who, still some, who still have big pictures of Mao Zedong or Che Guevara in their office or Castro or, or, or you know, whatever other mass murdering communist that, uh, that, the, that they still have. I still see the T-shirts on campus all the time. They might want to take a look. Take a look at this book, the Black Book of Communism, that uh, that was published some years ago by seven French scholars and translated into English. I don't know if you can read that, but uh, this is a, the death toll. Now, this is uh, the number of people murdered by their own governments because they dissented from socialism. This is not war deaths. This is not World War II or anything like that. This is how many people were murdered by their own governments because they did not want socialism. Soviet Union, 20 million. China, 60 million. Vietnam, 1 million. North Korea, 2 million. Cambodia, 2 million. Eastern Europe, 1 million. Latin America, 150,000. Africa, 1.7 million. And Afghanistan, 1.5 million deaths. And uh, there, there's a, a sociologist named uh, uh, Rudy Rummel, R-U-M-M-E-L. He was at the University of Hawaii for many years, and uh, he has a website. He wrote a book uh, called Democide, and uh, and another one called Death by Government. And you can you could Google him, and you can find all these statistics on this. And it's Death by Government. It's it it's, gives chapter and verse of this. And so what what Hayek basically said the, the way this works is under socialism you have to impose some sort of central plan on society. And because of economic reality, the plan fails. Okay, that's step one. The plan fails. Step two is rather than admit failure, the powers that be, uh, such as in, in, in Venezuela, uh, will, will adopt even more dictatorial powers. And uh, the guys from Venezuela will tell you how they, they disbanded their le national legislature and put their p political cronies in power instead and so they're sort of uh, doing away with democracy altogether, all that. And then at some point, Hayek said, the powers, the governmental powers will have, they must choose between 
a disregard of normal morals and failure. Either they're going to admit failure or they have to disregard morals and become brutal. And which one do you think they're going to choose? They're never going to admit failure. And so that, that leads eventually to more and more uh, violence and so, and so forth. And if you, in the, the Black Book of Communism, has some very uh, telling, it's kind of disgusting reading. I had students in a class read, read this book once, and uh, I might have caused psychological problems, by some of them. And uh, here's, here's what they write about what happened in, uh, in uh, the Soviet Union, for example. Among the techniques, these are techniques used to deal with people who dissented against socialism. Among the techniques employed by socialist regimes, not just Soviet Union, but all over the world, firing squads, hanging, <clears throat> drowning, battering, gassing, poisoning, or, car, or quote, car accidents. Something reminds you of Bill Clinton, doesn't it? The <laughs> destruction of the population by starvation through man-made fa famine, the withholding of food or both, Deportation through which death can occur in transit, you know, accidentally, of course, uh, or through forced labor, exhaustion, illness, hunger, or cold. The Soviet Union's experiment with socialism included what these authors call its venture into planned, logical, and politically correct mass slaughter. So, so when your professors have these pictures of Mao Zedong in their office, or you see somebody wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt, and they always take the moral high ground, don't they, on the college campus? So the socialists are always the social justice. You know, they're the social justice. These are the people they are associating with. This is what they're associating with. You know, how, how, how much justice do all these millions of dead people get who dissented against socialism? So you need to throw that in their face. I, some of my students uh, that were members of like college Republicans got the, uh, were in my class, and they, they got this data on all the deaths and they had sort of the, the day where you can join, they all set up booths on campus outside and you can join this club or that club, the, you know, the, the fencing club or the swimming club or the, and they had the, the Republican club and they were handing out these statistics on death by government and, the, and they told me that they didn't run across one student who had ever heard anything at all about any of this. You know, they totally uh, didn't know one person ever died under, under uh, socialism in the 20th century. And these were all, you know, 20, 21 year old uh, students, okay? Uh, the next, next point I would make is uh, fascism is the same as, so, as a form of socialism. And Hayek explained this pretty clearly in The Road to Surf, Serfdom. You know, there was a false dichotomy that is credited with Joseph Stalin himself where he claimed that, uh, you know, there was a difference between communism and fascism because you know, the Germans were fascists, but, and, uh, and those were his enemies, you know, they, after a while. They were his, his allies for a while at the beginning of World War II, but then his enemies. And so he, the, the Russians pretty much, they succeeded, and with a lot of help by leftist academics and others, that, to say that, if, well, if you're not an economist, if you're not a communist, you're a fascist. And who wants to be associated with Hitler? And so you want to be associated with the nice socialists, Stalin. And so, you know, so, yeah, Mao Zedong. And so, but they're basically the same thing. You know, after all, uh, Nazi means national socialism, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, after all. That's, that's what, it, what it, the word means. Um, so, so here's what Hayek said. 
Let's see. Yeah, let's see. The, the, the dominant feature of fascism, Hayek said, was a fierce hatred of anything capitalistic. Individual profit-seeking, large-scale enterprise, banks, joint stock companies, department stores, international finance, and loan capital, and the interest, the system of what they called interest slavery, you know, the charging interest slavery in, uh, in, in general. Okay, and so uh, it's, if you look at the, the, the fascists of the 20th century, like Mussolini, Hitler, uh, before they became into power, especially Mussolini, they spent years denouncing classical liberalism, Adam Smith, uh, what they called the English tradition, which would have been the English tradition of John Locke, Adam Smith, uh, classical liberalism. And they actually used the word classical liberalism in their denunciations. So, so let me take it from the horse's mouth. Uh, I read, uh, years ago, I read Mussolini's biography, autobiography. And it's kind of funny. He writes an autobiography, and he was a PhD. He didn't have a PhD in philosophy, I think. He was a, he was a highly educated uh, Italian. And, but, but his biography, the title, reminded me of... Uh, well, if you gave a third grader the assignment, write a bi autobiography and give it a title. That's your homework assignment for the weekend. And his t the title of his autobiography was My Autobiography. <laughs> it's, it's like the third grader, My Autobiography. Right? Well, well, I went and got ice cream. and I went and it, it was, uh, But anyway, but, it, but the substance was, there's more substance than that in his... his uh, and he also wrote a book called Fascism, Doctrine and Institutions. He said this, the fascist conception of, conception of life stresses the importance of the state and accepts the individual only insofar as his interests coincide with the state. It is opposed to classical liberalism. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And of course, classical liberalism is the philosophical underpinning of capitalism. You know, read Mises' book, Liberalism. That's why Mises called his book Liberalism, Classical Liberalism. And he said, it is opposed to classical liberalism, which denied the state in the name of the individual. Okay, that's Mussolini. He goes on to say, the maxim that society exists only for the well-being and freedom of the individuals composing it does not seem to be in conformity with nature's plans, which care only for the species and seem ready to sacrifice uh, the individual. He says, uh, the idea that individuals should be sacrificed for the greater good is the essence of the fascist philosophy. So that's uh, Mussolini himself. In uh, German fascism, there's a man named Paul Lynch, who was one of the sort of the uh, ideological uh, godfathers of German fascism. He wrote a book called Three Years of World Revolution. And uh, he, said, he said this, he condemned English liberalism, classical liberalism, uh, he said, is a classical embodiment and which was adopted by the spokesman of the German bourgeoisie in the 50s, 60s, and 70s of the 19th century. But these standards are old-fashioned and shattered, just as old-fashioned English liberalism has been shattered. What has to be done now is to get rid of these inherited political ideas and to assist in the growth of a new conception of state and society. In this sphere, also, socialism must present a conscious and determined opposition to individualism. That's, the, that's one of the intellectual godfathers of Nazism saying that. And so, of course, socialism and uh, fascism were the same thing. And uh, the Jews were, were seen as symbols 
of capitalism to the Nazis. Uh, Hayek wrote this. He wrote, uh, he quoted uh, them saying, the party, the Nazi party, com this is Hitler himself speaking from Mein Kampf. The party combats the Jewish materialist spirit within and without us and is convinced that our nation can achieve a permanent health from within only on the principle, the common interest before the self-interest. And so right out of Hitler's mouth himself, he said that you know, he thought the Jewish people were symbols of capitalism and that's why he wanted to destroy them and capitalism. And the Nazis, by the way, nationalized about 50% of the German economy. They just took over about half of them, all the factories and things. And the rest were heavily regu <coughs> regulated and regimented <clears throat> by the government so that they were de facto nationalized. And so, uh, and Hayek wrote in the, in the Red Serfdom that, you know, if the government takes over 50% of all the means of production and regulates the other 50% endlessly, it's pretty much pure socialism. It's, you know, you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's not anything else. Okay. Point number eight that I would make, since, you know, if you look up the Democratic Socialists of America and other, other leftist groups today, they want unlimited welfare. Uh, they want to bring in all the every peasant, every last peasant from the third world, and put them on welfare here in the United States. You know, you know they say it right in their, in their websites. And so, what do we know about uh, socialist wel welfare state? Well, of course, it encourages dependency, which is a form of slavery to the state. Uh, it crowds out private charity. Uh, when uh, you know people, people, a lot of people take the attitude, well, the government will take care of my parents in their old age, so I don't need to save up for them. Social Security will take care of them. I don't need to educate my own children. The government is educating my children. I don't need to lift a finger to help the poor people in my neighborhood. Uh, the single mother who lost her job and it still has three kids to feed. I don't need to do anything for her because the government is taking care of her. She gets a welfare check. And so it crowds out private uh, individual efforts either individually or collectively to do these things. And, they, and of course, the private efforts are always much more effective. It destroys families. And uh, that, that was always, that's one of the, one of the uh, things that was emphasized in the, in the Communist Manifesto, the abolition of the family. Because if, you're, if, you're, uh, if your allegiance is to your family, you can't, it's not to the state. And so you can't have that. You, uh, every type of allegiance must be eliminated, whether it's the state, the local government, or anything else, religion. Uh, yeah, you know, can't, can't let that uh, exist. And so, uh, and there's a big literature on this. Uh, I would recommend reading Charles Murray's landmark book, Losing Ground, if, you, if you've never heard of it or read of it, about the effects of the welfare state. Charles Murray worked for the go federal government for 15 years after getting his PhD in political science and statistics from MIT. And his job was to evaluate uh, welfare programs. And boy, did he learn a lot. And then, then, then he left the government and years later wrote this book, Losing Ground, that had to do with a lot of the research he had conducted all this time about the effects of the welfare state. So uh, I don't have time to get into it much more than that, but I would just recommend uh, you know, looking that up if you want to learn a little bit about these things I just said about the effects of the, of the welfare state. You know, the first plank of the Communist Manifesto is abolition of private property, big capital letters. Plank number two, there's a 10... Uh, 
10 planks of, you know, 10, 10 things. That we, you know, we've pretty much adopted all of them here in the United States say, a long time ago. But the second one was a progressive income tax, a heavy, use the word heavy, heavy progressive income tax. The second plank, you know, second most important thing to Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. And of course, we know that the, the income tax uh, penalizes work, thrift, and entrepreneurship and, and fuels envy and class warfare, and that's called fairness. Uh, that's what we call that. We call that fairness. Uh, but it, it does something uh, even worse than that. Is it, it's the nationalization of income. When, when the U.S. government adopted an income tax in, nine, in the year 1913, it was announcing that all the income that you produce from now on is ours. We, the government, own all of your income, and we will tell you how much of it you're allowed to keep by setting the tax rates. But it's ours. If we want to set the tax rate at 90%, we have that right now. If we want to set it at 10%, we have that right too. But your income is ours. So they nationalize the income. And, and that, what that means is that, you know, the government, when, uh, uh, you know, as, as a lot of you know, I've, I've written quite a bit about the, the American Civil War and Lincoln and these things. Uh, well, there was a, a huge desertion crisis in the U.S. Army in the, during the Civil War. You read, you read, I read these books about desertion, and, and uh, you never taught this in school, but there would be times when on the eve of a big battle, there would be 80,000 Union Army soldiers in camp, and then the next day when the battle begins, there's 10,000. Where'd they go? They're, they're massive. And, but the government was small enough that it just didn't have the resources to hunt down the, the deserters. They, they hid out in the mountains of Pennsylvania or someplace like that. But with an income tax, with the government's ability to put its, its paws in everybody's pockets, there's no problem. You know, you're not going to desert from the army. They're going to track you down and shoot you, probably you know, put you in prison, make you live in a cage for a long time or execute you because they can hire thousands and thousands of people to go out and find you once they have all that money. And so uh, the income tax created a tremendous centralization of power in the nation's capital because now the nation's capital had its, its hand in everybody's pocket with the income taxes. So it basically nationalized uh, everybody's income. Uh, the final point I would make, since all of your, your, your uh, s snowflake uh, uh, classmates with the capitalism must die t-shirts uh, claim to be environmentalists, they need to know that the worst environmental catastrophes in human history <clears throat> have taken place in the socialist countries. Uh, during the, right when, when communism, when socialism collapsed in the Soviet Union and Eastern and Central Europe, you know, these were closed societies for the most part for decades. And so you couldn't just go and look around uh, there. Uh, this, this same, uh, this Mont Pelerin Society meeting I attended to when I was, uh, uh, a long time ago, I was young, uh, a story about that is that uh, the meeting before that was in uh, the West Berlin, and you were allowed to go into East Berlin. And so Hayek himself and Milton Friedman and some of these older Mont Pelerin uh, members got on a bus and went on a tour. And, and, uh, and the, 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 the guards, the East German guards, uh, found out that they were part of the Mont Pelerin Society. And Mont Pelerin is a mountain in Switzerland. So they thought it was a mountain climbing society, and they see feeble old William H. Hutt here, you know, and Hayek, you know, he's here. and they said, these guys aren't mountain climbers. So they held them up for like hours. They, they, they went through all the, any luggage they had and everything, and, 
in the, in, as far as that goes. But, uh, but once communism collapsed, we were able to freely walk around. And so there were all these uh, books have been written with titles like Ecocide in the USSR, Ecological Suicide. And I wrote quite a few articles. There's one, uh, the easiest to read one is in the Freeman. I, I, think it's, I think they titled it How Socialism Causes Pollution. But what we found was things like uh, in uh, Lake Baikal, the, the biggest freshwater lake in the world, uh, there were uh, uh, non-treated sewage had been pumped into it for for seventy years, and uh, and, the, and the, there were articles in the in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, places like that about how there were islands of sewage three miles wide and eight miles long floating around Lake Baikal. Could you imagine on a sunny day being out there in your sailboat and you kind of fall asleep because you've had a couple of beers, and then you, the and the boat kind of crashes into something, and you, and you wake up, and there's an island of crap eight miles long. So you just, <laughs> just ran into. Uh, there were stories of uh, in parts of Eastern Europe where the soil was uh, contaminated down to a foot deep because of decades of overuse of chemical fertilizers. Nothing would grow. Uh, in Poland, if you had lung disease, they would send you to underground uranium mines to, to improve your health. And I would think it's not, not the safest place to be next to uranium under the earth. But uh, uh, in, in, part, in uh, the industrial parts of Poland, there were stories of how several times a day, uh, fire trucks would go through town with big hoses to knock the lead and cadmium dust out of the air. Uh, and uh, an old friend who, who uh, grew up and lived in uh, former Yugoslavia and was a lawyer for the government, Ivan Pongrasic, his senior, yeah, you know, there's some of you might know the young Ivan Pongrasic, but his father, uh, he was a government lawyer under the Yugoslavian government under communism, and so he had privileges, and so having privileges, he was able to get a nice apartment, but he picked the thirtieth floor in a building with no elevator, and so and I asked him once, uh, did you do that because for physical fitness? You know, are you in training for the senior Olympics or what's that? He said, oh no, it's uh, the, the pollution is so bad. That uh, you can't if you you can't open your windows below the thirtieth floor, right? you know the, you can't see anything for one thing, and it's a, and then all the pollution, the lead dust and everything comes in your into your house, and so so we had these economic catastrophes, and so uh, and, and that by the way calls into question the whole Pigouvian uh, theory about pollution, doesn't it? Because the basic theory is that the, the root cause of pollution problems is unregulated free markets. But in these societies that outlawed unregulated free markets for 50, 60, 70 years, we had the, by far the worst pollution problems in the world. And so, and so that's, that's that point. Now, one more point I'll make, is that, and we'll wrap it up, is that socialism is, uh, is, a, is a cause of inequality, not equality. Capitalism is the great equalizer. You know, how many stories do you need to be told of the immigrant who comes to America or the person born into a poor family who makes something of himself and, and starts a business and becomes an entrepreneur and becomes wealthy. Uh, how, many, how many times do you have to see, see that? It's capitalism is the great equalizer. Economic freedom is the great equalizer. Socialism is the great stultifier uh, out there because as Hayek said, under socialism, the only power worth having is political power. So the politically connected live very well. Uh, everybody else is equal in their poverty. Uh, I, read, uh, I read a while back, for example, that the daughter of the former uh, uh, president of Venezuela uh, is reportedly worth, what's the number they gave? Reportedly worth, I think, uh, $4 billion or something like that. 
uh, some huge amount of, of wealth. And, uh, you know, but did she invent Microsoft or something like that? Where, Apple computer? How did she become worth billions of dollars? I also read that the former finance minister of Venezuela, who no longer who left the country, I think he lives in Switzerland now, is worth billions of dollars in, in wealth. And so I also read that as, as, as dire as things are for the ordinary people in Venezuela today, still the politically politically connected still belong to country clubs and live live a pretty decent life. Uh, there, while while other people are eating dogs and cats, and and things like that in, in that in that country, and so and that's always been true of socialism, no matter where it is. The political elite live not, live well. The Castro, Fidel Castro, uh, had you know he had five or six uh, big mansions on the on the Caribbean, and uh, uh, as far as that goes, Joseph Stalin uh, was the wealthiest man in the world during his time, not John D. Rockefeller. He essentially claimed ownership to the whole Soviet Union. Rockefeller never owned that much property, <laughs> as, far, as far as that goes. So, of course, uh, socialism is the great unequalizer, not the great equalizer. And it looks like my time is about up, and that's my story for now, and I'm sticking to it. And so, uh, and remember, uh, uh, Jeff Deist is standing by the door, and he won't let you out unless you buy a copy of this, uh, <laughs> of this book.